Hello and welcome to Living Hope. This is Pastor Staten, and I want to welcome everybody that is joining us today. A shout out to our E family, all of you that are joining us through the internet. I want to remind you every Sunday morning at 11 o'clock, you can join us live at tv.livinghopemd.com. I pray that today's message blesses you and that you enjoy the word as it is shared today. I'm so lost to be found, and I know it's in my mind. Today is going to be a great day. Amen. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? I mean, this is the day the Lord has made. Can I get a few folks just to join with me in declaring, I will rejoice and be glad in it. How many know how to be glad? Anybody? It's not a word we use often, but do you know how to be glad? Why don't you look at your neighbor, show them your glad face. What does that look like when you're glad? Because a lot of people, you don't, you don't show that face as often. Show them your glad face. Put a smile on. Amen? We used to sing that song all the time. I know Maddie's not in here. She's in hyphen. But I'm so glad that the Lord saved me. Right? We used to sing that all the time. If it had not been for Jesus, where would I be? I'm so glad that the Lord saved me. And as I prepared this morning, when we used to do it back at the old, at the old uh, church campus, I remember as a teenager, pastor would be leading worship, and he'd always get to the end of that song, and he'd have his little part, and I'm glad about it. Y'all remember that part? And I'm glad about it. I'm going to shout about it. Just took me back as I was preparing. Is anybody glad about it this morning, that the Lord saved me? God is so good, amen? Well, let's uh, begin this Sunday school hour. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Proverbs chapter 23. We're going to read one verse this morning. And while you're making your way there, I give honor to our pastor this morning for this opportunity to speak once again. Give honor to him and his family. We truly have the best of the best. I believe in all the Pentecost here at Living Hope. And so I give honor to them. Also give honor to my wife this morning, my beautiful wife. I know she's not in here. Every time I get up here, she's not in here. But let her know, you know, I am blessed. And don't worry, I know I'm blessed. I got the best deal out of that package God put together. Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Scott. Somebody's with me. Amen. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 23. Would you read it with me this morning? By the truth... And sell it not. Also, wisdom and instruction and understanding. Buy the truth and sell it not. Would you put your Bibles down and pray with me this morning? Lord, I thank you, God, for such a beautiful day, Lord. I'm glad to be in the house of the Lord this morning, God. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you for this opportunity, God, to be in your presence. God, open up your word to us today. God, challenge us, help us to grow closer. To you, God, help us to buy the truth, God, to possess the truth, to get the truth no matter the cost, God, and never let it go, never sell it. And I pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So I'm going to start this morning's lesson out slightly different or in a slightly different manner than perhaps the norm. And I'd like everyone to participate if you can. All right. Um, I can understand if you can't, primarily because the main reason I understand is 
We're living in a time where we may not even carry this around anymore. But if you have cash on you, I'd like you to take out a bill. Find a bill if you have it. Take out a bill. It doesn't matter the bill. It could be a $1, $2. Those are rare. 5 or $10, $20. If you're a big baller and you got $100, maybe we can have a separate conversation. I can introduce you to the Henderson Fund. All right. I'm kidding. I am, I am kidding. Maybe I'm not. Um, come see me. We can, you know, have a, have a little discussion. But I'm going to participate as well. I have a $20 bill in my hand. And so my analogy this morning, my question to you, how many of you have ever seen counterfeit money? Most of you guys have. Cool. I have too. Some of these counterfeit attempts were terrible. They look like Monopoly money, right? But there's some, and even today, maybe you're holding a counterfeit dollar and you don't even know that you're holding a counterfeit dollar. How do you know if the bill you're holding in your hand right now is genuine or counterfeit? Do you know? How do you know? Yeah, some people do that. So Valerie, hold it up to the light, right? Check it. Make sure it's good. You get that little marker and, and scrape it. Now, some of us have seen some terrible attempts at fake money, but as our world gets more sophisticated and complex, counterfeiters have become more adept at successfully passing off the fake for the real. Not surprisingly, according to the National Bank of Arizona, the U.S. dollar is the most counterfeit currency in the world, followed by the Mexican peso and the British pound. You may think counterfeiting is not the problem, maybe it used to be in the past, but according to the United States Department of Treasury, an estimated $70 million in counterfeit bills are in circulation right now, potentially more. That's a lot of money. $70 million is a lot of money. Approximately one counterfeit dollar for every 10,000 genuine U.S. dollars is currently in circulation. So there are eight ways, as you're holding this bill, there's eight ways to spot a counterfeit. The first is color shifting ink. That's pretty normal. We see if you have your dollar bill. One of the first things to check to see if a bill is authentic is the bill denomination on the bottom right hand corner. If that is shifting colors as you're looking at it, then you probably have a genuine bill. The second one is a watermark. The watermark on your bill should always be on the right-hand side of the bill. If you have it on the left, then that's fake. Simple as that. If it's on the left-hand side, it's fake. This 20 I have has a, has a watermark on the, on the right edge of the, of the 20. Um, if you don't have a watermark at all, then again, it's fake. All right? The third way to spot a counterfeit bill is the edges of the bill are blurry. The printing, the text is blurry on it. Authentic bills are made using a die-cut printing plate that creates impressively fine lines, so they are incredibly detailed. And counterfeit printers are usually not capable of the same level of detail. The next one is raised printing. Have you ever felt around your bill and noticed the wording kind of feels there's a texture to it? That's because the printing that's done on the bill raises what's printed off of the actual surface of the bill a little bit. So there's raised printing. 
The fifth way is there is a security thread within the bill with microprinting within it. This security thread is a thin embedded strip running from the top to the bottom of the face of the banknote. In the $10 and $50 bills, the security strip is located to the right of the portrait. In the $5 and $20 and $100 bills, it's located to the left of the portrait. In my $20 bill right now, so far it's passing all the checks. I've got a thin strip on the left that says US 20 multiple times going down. All right, the next one, the next one is within that security strip, believe it or not. There is an ultraviolet glow. If, if you put it under ultraviolet light, you'd see different uh, color pigmentation on the security strip. $5 bills glow blue, $10 bills glow orange, $20 bills glow green, $50 bills glow yellow, and $100 bills glow red and pink. The seventh way to check if your bill is fake is embedded within the fiber of the bill are red and blue threads. Have you ever got a crisp dollar bill and you looked at it and it's kind of got like a red or blue kind of tint to it? That's because woven in the bill, there are red and blue threads. And the last, the last way to tell if you have a counterfeit is fairly simple. Every bill has a serial number on it. You get a bill that has the same serial number as another, well... Somewhere along the line, a fake was created. So hopefully, the bill you are holding passes the counterfeit test that you just gave. If not, well, according to the Treasury and various banks, you should do the following if it didn't pass the counterfeit test. Write your initials and date in the white border areas of the bill that you su suspect to be counterfeit. Don't go and use it, <laughs> right? That way you won't get in trouble for it. But put it in an envelope and take it to the police. That's what they tell you to do. Take it to the police, put your initials on it, tell them what you found, and they'll handle it accordingly. So you can go ahead and put your money away this morning. Thank you for participating. Believe it or not, our U.S. Department of Treasury doesn't train its agents in all eight of those ways to find counterfeit money. They don't sit down and have a class and say, here's what you should learn. Check for this, check for that. That's not how it's done. Surprisingly, the real way they are trained is they spend countless hours studying what the real thing looks like. And so they get so accustomed to handling the genuine bill that any other attempt when another bill is placed in front of them, they are immediately able to know by studying the genuine thing what's fake versus what's real. And so just as there is counterfeit money, how many know there's counterfeit truth? Right? Counterfeit truth. Why do you think there are people circulating counterfeit truth? Why do we have that in the world we live in today? Just like there's counterfeit money, I can think of a million ways you might make some counterfeit money, but why would you orchestrate counterfeit truth. How do we recognize if this truth is counterfeit or a lie or fake? And as I was looking this up or even contemplating this lesson, my first inkling was the major question is what is truth? As believers of God, first of all, 
The simple answer is truth is found in the Bible. Amen? Truth is found in the Bible. Every child of God must understand that this divinely inspired word of God from Genesis to Revelation is truth. Truth is every defined doctrine that we find in the word of God. Truth is everything, every single doctrine that we find in this word is truth. Truth is that there is one God and his name is Jesus. Amen. Webster's Dictionary describes, describes truth as the quality or state of being true. It also means that which is true or in accordance with fact. In the Old Testament, truth is translated from the Hebrew word ameth. Everybody say ameth. Very weird word to say. But in the New Testament, the Greek word aletheia is used for the word truth. Both of these words, ameth and aletheia, both of these words have a similar meaning that truth it is that which is true or in accordance with fact, very similar to our English definition. But as I looked into this, how many have a Strong's Concordance? Have you ever pulled one of them things out? They are big and bulky, and I'm thankful for a digital age because if we had to carry that to church every Sunday, whew, we would be uh, hurting on our backs. But anyway, as I was looking into the Strong's Concordance, the Greek lexicon, I found this definition of truth and it goes a little bit more detailed. It says, truth or the truth as taught in the Christian religion is respecting God and the execution of his purposes through Christ and respecting the duties of man. Opposing, in this definition, it says, opposing alike to the superstition of the Gentiles or what we would call the world and the inventions of the Jews and the corrupt opinions and precepts of false teachers, even amongst the church. How many know that we live in a culture that has so many different ideas about truth, so many different kind of conceptions of what truth is? And if you were to ask someone what is truth on the street, you'll likely get a different answer than, you know, you can poll 50 people and you may get 50 different answers. A Barna Research Group did a survey on what Americans believe and they asked the question, is there absolute truth? 66% of adults responded that they believe that there is no such thing as absolute truth. These people affirm that people can define truth in conflicting ways and still be correct. This was their own idea of what truth is. 72% of these folks that were polled we're aged 18 to 25, 72% of this particular age group agreed with the 66%. And in a series of more than 20 interviews conducted at random at a large university, people were asked if there was such a thing as absolute truth. All but one person answered along these lines. Truth is whatever you believe. That's what these folks in a college, the next generation of what America will be governed and run at, right? This is the next generation. These folks believe that truth is whatever you believe. And they said there is no absolute truth. They said if there was such a thing as absolute truth, how could we know what it is? This is what the next generation, my generation, had to say about absolute truth. They would go on to say people who believe in absolute truth are dangerous. Isn't that weird? 
how can the truth be dangerous? How can this word of God be dangerous? It should be the opposite. It is a lifeline. It is exactly what we need. It's not dangerous. Amen? Do you think this research reflects the world we live in today? If you would ask your coworker, what is absolute truth? What answer would you get? What, what response would you get? If you have your Bible, let's look at Hosea chapter 4, starting at verse 1. Hosea chapter 4, verse 1. We're going to read through verse 6. It says, Hear the word of the Lord, ye children of Israel. Hosea is saying, For the Lord hath a controversy with the inhabitants of the land, because there is no truth. There is no mercy, and there is no knowledge of God in the land. As I was studying or preparing today for this lesson, go back to verse 1 for me, Sister Simone. The first thing that jumped out to me was that of all people, God is the one that had a controversy. God had a controversy with the people. Usually it's us believers that have the controversy. We're the ones with the dilemma. We're the ones facing a trial or facing whatever it may be. We're the ones that have a controversy. And as I looked up the definition, what is actually a, a controversy? A controversy is an argument that involves many people who strongly disagree about something. How many had a controversy even this morning? On your way to church, did you have a controversy, All right? We're the ones usually with the controversies. We're the ones who bring our disagreements to God, our problems, our struggles, our trials. We're the ones that usually have a controversy that we take to God. But here we find God coming to them and saying, I have a controversy with you. I have a problem with you. Why would God use such strong language? Why would he come out boldly and tell them, I got a problem with you? The quarrel had arisen because of the lack of truth in the land. There was no faithfulness, no reliability. There was no stance of absolutes. How many know it's okay to stand on an absolute, to draw a line in the sand, to say, I'm not, I'm not backing off of what I believe? We should do that as men and women of God. When we stand for the word, when we stand for truth, we need to draw a line in the sand. But in this instance, there was no stance of absolutes along the people. Instead of truth, all there was is what I would call error. And as we look at verse 2 of Hosea, I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. Verse 2 through 5 says, the Lord is saying to the people, you make vows and you break them. You kill and you steal and commit adultery. There is violence everywhere, one murder after another. Verse 3, that is why your land is in mourning and everyone is wasting away. Even the wild animals, the birds of the sky and the fish of the sea are disappearing. Verse 4 says, don't point your finger at someone else and try to pass the blame. My complaint or as the King James Version says, you are people striving to be like the priest. You're trying to govern yourself. 
is what he's trying to say here. My complaint, you priest, is with you. Verse 5, so you'll stumble around or stumble in broad daylight and your false prophets will fail with you in the night and I will destroy Israel, your mother. Hosea says that there is no truth and as a consequence to no truth, there is no mercy, which leads in this progression to no knowledge of God in the land. And the people in this instance were destroyed because they lost truth. There was a progression that led to their destruction, and it started with no truth. Does that sound familiar to anyone? When we look at our world and, and the craziness that's going on, even in our own country that was founded, you know, our founding fathers of the United States of America believed in one God. They believed in the word of God. And as generations have come along and we have slowly lost the word of God in our nation, we're seeing what happened in the Bible. We're seeing our own nation be destroyed really from within because there is no truth. Verse 6, this is a very common verse. We know it says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge because thou hast rejected knowledge. I will also reject thee, the Lord says, that thou shalt be no priest to me, seeing that thou hast forgotten the truth, the law of thy God. I will also forget thy children. I said this earlier, but I believe that the opposite of truth would be error. An error from a spiritual standpoint, has many forms. Sin, the most obvious of errors, right, is sin. But another error would be transgression, untruth, flaw or inaccuracy, mismanagement, omission, inaccuracy. The list can go on and on and on what error may look like to you. But the truth is you don't have to look very far or very hard to find error. How many know it's easy to, to see the problems in the world? It's easy to see the errors that, are, that is all around us. It's convenient and readily available for those looking for it. The truth, on the other hand, requires effort to find. Solomon said it, and we read it. It's our scripture text. Buy the truth and sell it not. Other translations tell us to get the truth or possess the truth. The King James Version uses the word buy, but each word requires action. You don't just wake up knowing the truth. I wish it was that easy. We're not born having a complete understanding of truth. Every person must set out to acquire truth. They must set out to search the word of God, set out to, to find it. And after finding it, we got to make a daily choice to hold on to it. The good news is that God wants you to find it more than we want to find it. God wants us to find and have truth. Even more than we want it, he wants it for us. Psalms 51 and verse 6, this is David writing. This was after David had been the prophet. Nathan comes up to him and, and he basically tells him, you're the problem because he committed adultery and his whole ordeal with Bathsheba. The, his friend Nathan comes up to him and tells them all this. And we know the prayer, if you look at the beginning, go back to verse 1 real quick. Simone, we've, we've all probably read this verse in Psalms. Go back to verse 1 real quick. Psalms 51 and verse 1 says, Have mercy on me, O God, 
according to thy loving kindness, according unto the multitude of thy tender mercies, blot out my transgressions. Verse 2, wash me thoroughly from mine iniquity, from my error. Cleanse me from my sin. This is David praying now. Verse 3, for I acknowledge my error, my transgression. My sin is ever before me. Verse 4, against thee and thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight, thou, that thou mightest be justified when thou speakest and be clear when thou judgest. Behold, I was shapen in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. From the beginning, God, I've had error in my life. In verse 6, David finally comes to a realization. Behold, what you desire, Lord, more than even I desire, you desire truth to be inside of me. Thou desires truth in the inward parts, and in the hidden part, thou shalt make me to know wisdom. So God wants you to have truth even more than you want it. The bad news, on the other hand, is that we have an adversary who hates truth and does everything possible to persuade us away from the truth. Jesus said in John chapter 8 and verse 44 that Satan was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in truth because there is no truth in him, Jesus says. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Satan has always been and still is today what we can call a murderer. He hates truth. There is not one iota of truth in him. Satan gets the ultimate thrill by deceiving and deluding God's children. He does this by calling evil good and good evil. He labels darkness light and he calls light darkness. He calls the things that are bitter sweet and the things that are sweet he calls bitter. In Matthew 24 in verses 3 through 5, the disciples were asking Jesus about what it would be like in the last days. And Jesus, as he sat upon the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when shall these things be? And what shall be the sign of thy coming and the end of the world? What is it going to be like in the last days? What is it going to be like in 2021? And Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. The first words that come to our Lord's lips when asked about the end of the age or the signs that, were, that are going to be in the last days was to beware of deception. Beware of the truth being masqueraded as a lie. Beware of deception. Jesus warned the ultimate game plan of Satan in the last days would be to get as many people as possible to miss the rapture by being deceived, by deception and delusion. This is not a new tactic of the enemy. Way back in the Garden of Eden, the devil's method of getting Adam and Eve kicked out was by introducing questions about God's word. Yet our Lord knew that there would be an even greater attack of deception and delusion just before he comes again. Deception is all around us. Error is all around us. Error has become so prevalent that people don't even question if it's wrong anymore. 
They just take it for fact. I read it on the internet. Hello. All right. They just take error for fact without even doing a check of it themselves. And believe it or not, the church is not immune to this. There are churches every day that let down their standards and compromise. And before you know it, it's led to them selling the truth. When all along they should have bought it and held on to it. If you're in a church, and I'm thankful it's not our church, but messages and catchphrases heard in the pulpits of America today are, we're not judgmental. We allow people to live for God according to the dictates of their own heart. We don't want to preach a decisive or a divisive message. We don't want anyone to get offended at the word of God, so we want to preach a message that is comfortable for everyone. How many know that is error? That is error. Churches have fallen away from the truth without even realizing it. They've conformed to this idea of the world, this deception of the enemy. And believe it or not, they're selling the truth. Anybody glad that we're a part of the church that stands for truth? That believes in holiness and separation from the world. That believes you must repent and be baptized in Jesus' name, and you must be filled with the Holy Ghost, evidenced by speaking in tongues. We believe there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism, that there's only one God, and his name is Jesus. I've come to let someone know today, if that rubs you the wrong way, like Hosea described, we might have a controversy. Right? Church, do we believe that? that rubs us the wrong way, then there is a controversy. And unfortunately, the controversy isn't with God. The controversy starts with us. We don't believe what we believe simply to believe it. We believe it because we've experienced it. Amen? I said it earlier. I'm glad about it. The Lord has saved me. He's turned my life around, and I've experienced firsthand the truth of this word. The reason we believe What we believe is because everything written in this book is truth. In a day and an hour where truth may not be important to some churches, please don't ever believe that the truth is no longer important to God. It's always been important to God. The word of truth appears in the King James Version of the Bible 211 times. That word ameth, sorry, and aletheia appear in the Bible, 211 times. And if you search it, if you look into it, you'll find this about truth. The Bible tells us we should worship God in truth. Tells us to serve God in truth. Walk before God in truth. Esteem truth as inestimable. You can't put a price on it is what it's saying. It tells us to love truth, to rejoice in truth to execute judgment with truth, to meditate upon the truth. Bind truth about thy neck is what it says in the Old Testament. Write truth or write it on the table of our heart. It tells us to speak truth, to teach in truth, and to be men and women of God of truth. On the other hand, the Bible says this about the wicked. They are destitute or lacking in truth. They speak not the truth. They don't uphold the truth. 
They don't plead for the truth or, or, or ask for the truth. They're not valiant for truth. And they are punished for want of truth. And the wise man Solomon admonishes us by the truth and sell it not. Let's look at this a little bit more deeply this morning. The first principle that we find here in Psalms 23 and 23, I mean in Proverbs 23 and 23, is clearly stated by the truth. By the truth. We must be prepared to pay a fair price for anything really worthwhile. How many of you have bought something and then regretted it? You're like, I spent all this money for this. Man, it was a letdown. We learn what a thing is worth to people by what they're willing to pay for it. Consider the salaries of some of today's top athletes and executives. I love golf. Tiger Woods is a billionaire. A billionaire. That's ridiculous for hitting a white ball down a fairway. He's won a lot of times, but a billion dollars, and that may seem outrageous to us, but in many cases, the simple truth is that these athletes are being paid that much money because that is what they're worth to the fans and the shareholders that look at them or, or, or exalt them. It's a form of praise, really, is what it is, unfortunately. Revolutionary war journalist Thomas Paine wrote this. What we obtain too easily, we value too lightly. It is the cost that gives value. Every believer should understand that truth costs. If you don't think so, maybe you haven't been walking with God for too long. But if you read this word and you make it your own, if you value it, if you defend it, if you stand for it, Tell me it doesn't cost you anything. Before you're through, it may cost you far more than you had thought. Hours of ease and pleasure, this truth will cost us. Friends may walk away from us over this truth. It may cost us money, this truth. Yet, the truth still costs something. Salvation is gloriously free, but the truth costs. That is, if you want it for yourself, many who know the truth won't buy it. They won't pay what it costs to say, this is what I believe. This is my conviction. That's what it really is. This is my conviction. This is the line I'm not going to cross. Many people don't want to pay that price because the truth isn't worth that much to them. But God's word urges us to buy the truth, not buy it if you can get it at a bargain. <laughs> if the price isn't too great, that's not what it says. No, it says buy the truth. Buy it at any price because there is no price too great for the truth. It's worth far more than anything you or I can give in exchange for it. Jesus says in Matthew 13, in verse 44, this is the parable. Jesus says again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto treasure hid in a field. The which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. 
the treasure we have is truth. Jesus fixed value to the treasure. He said, when you find the truth, when you find the treasure, sell all that you have, buy the treasure, buy the truth. Whatever it takes for us to get the truth, we must get it. The second principle of this whole passage is very simple. It says, sell it not. Again, we can learn something of of the value of an object by what we're willing to sell it for. eBay and Craigslist, they're full of people trying to get rid of things. At a yard sale, have you ever found that gym in a yard sale? You're like, what? You're going to sell it? I'll take it right now, $2, right? Because we may value something that is someone else's, right, trash. Someone else's, they don't care about it anymore. We may value it. But how many people throughout the ages of time have bought the truth only to sell it out again? For a while, they valued and defended maybe some God-given conviction that was placed in their life that they read about in the word of God. But then presently or somewhere later down the line, they sold it again for something that seemed more valuable to them. Perhaps it was peace with other people. They didn't want to be divided anymore. So in order to break this barrier, I'm just going to sell a little bit of this truth. Or maybe they sold it for position or popularity or some other temporal gain. They perhaps miss it later on down the line after they sold it. And maybe before they sold it, they were mindful of it. But since it was no longer a conviction, it was easier to sell because they didn't hold on to it anymore. When I think about this principle of never selling the truth, I have to stop and wonder at what could have become of Esau. Esau had a powerful heritage and inheritance. He was surrounded, literally, as we read his story in the Bible, he was surrounded by truth. God walked with Abraham. Isaac got to experience who Jehovah Jireh was when his father was going to kill him on that altar, but yet God provided a ram. Here we have his son Esau, surrounded by truth, got to experience firsthand the faithfulness of God through his grandfather Abraham and father Isaac. Esau, being the older brother, automatically he inherited the birthright from his father Isaac. With the birthright, he got to receive all the wealth in his family. All the wealth would immediately go to Esau. The physical leadership of his people would belong to Esau. And ultimately, he would inherit a spiritual relationship with God because God promised through Abraham that the whole world would be blessed by his seed. So Abraham, Isaac, now Esau, he is standing in line to have a spiritual connection to the Lord. We could very well be describing God's people in this day and age as the Esaulites instead of the Israelites. We could. Instead of the three forefathers being Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they could have been Abraham, Isaac, and Esau this whole time. In Genesis chapter 25 and verse 34 tells us that Esau 
he despised the birthright and sold it to his brother Jacob for a bowl of porridge. The word despised means it was of no value. The message version of Genesis 25 and 34 says that Esau shrugged off his rights as the firstborn. The contemporary English Bible says Esau finished eating and drinking and he just got up and left, showing how little he thought of his right, the birthright. The New Century Version says Esau showed how little he cared about his rights as the firstborn son. To continue the relationship his father and grandfather had with God obviously didn't mean anything to Esau. As we look back on the relationship, maybe you've grown up in the church, maybe now that you've been in the church for a little while, can you imagine just casually not wanting a relationship with God anymore, not valuing that? How many have seen the value of God in your life? Amen. Would you ever want to sell that away? Why would you want to sell that away? If you are born in the truth and didn't have to buy it or sacrifice for it, be careful that you don't undervalue that which has been handed to you. The true value of some things aren't known until we lose them. When we say, oh, I wish I could have that back. I remember when I sold my dirt bike and wanted it back the next day, I was like, I don't have it anymore. I won't ever hear it rev up or or I'll be able to ride it down the street. You don't realize how much you missed something, how much you valued it until you lose it, until you don't have it no more. We lose loved ones and we realize how much they meant to us, how much we could have said to them in the moment. But when they're gone, we lose that opportunity. We lost the value in it. And such should read again what God tells us in Proverbs 23 and 23. Buy the truth and sell it not. He doesn't say don't sell it unless you can get a very good price for it. He says don't sell it at all. Don't sell it for any price. Buy it no matter what it costs and when it's yours, do not sell it for any price or under any consideration. It is because the truth is so little valued in this time that we live in that many of God's people have become spiritually powerless. When we sell out the truth, we start holding opinions instead of convictions. Because they have given the infallible, unchangeable word of God little place in their lives, they become powerless. We start walking around, and instead of seeing the blessings of God, all we see is error. All we see is problem. All we see is situation and circumstance. We can no longer see the value of having the truth in our life. God blesses and uses those who buy the truth and sell it not. We talked about it earlier, but there is an enemy that wants to buy it from you. And he'll entice you with whatever he can to seal that deal, to make that, that transaction from you to him. In the 21st chapter of 1 Kings, Naboth is faced with the most difficult decision of his lifetime whether he should sell his vineyard to the wicked king Ahab and his immoral wife Jezebel or to refuse to sell his vineyard, which was given to him as an inheritance. The truth is by selling the vineyard, he would have become 
very rich. He would have become favored in the world he lived in, and he would have stayed alive. Let that settle in for you. He would have sold out. He would have kept his life. Refusing to sell his vineyard was immediate death. It was certain death. I've offended the king. He, has, he can kill me, right? And ultimately, that's what happens. But in, Nabal, oh, in 1 Kings chapter 21 and verse 2 and 3, it says, And Ahab spake unto Naboth, saying, Give me thy vineyard, that I may have it for a garden of herbs, because it is near unto my house. And I will give thee for it a better vineyard than it. Or if it seem good to thee, I will give thee the worth of it in money. In verse 3, And Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid it in me, that I should give thee the inheritance of my fathers unto thee. The church, us, you and me, we are in many ways, we're at the same crossroads that Naboth found himself at. Every day we face pressure. Every day pressure is being brought to bear from every side. The devil is constantly nipping at our heels to compromise, to let down, to back up, to just sell this truth a little bit so that we can more fit in with the world we live in. To give in would obviously be the easier route to take. To fit in with the rest of the religious world, to fit in with the the hour we live in, it would ultimately mean less pressure for us. We wouldn't have to come to church as often. (laughs) Or we'd have more friends. We'd have more people that would be in our circle. We'd be more popular as it would. We would have a bigger congregation. How many of you ever heard churches say that? If you would just let down your standards, you'd have a thousand people here. There have been many people that have come to our church that have said that. But thank the Lord we have not let down on the standards. Amen? Because what we have is a spiritual inheritance. The question is, are we going to sell out? Are we going to compromise? Are we going to, or are we going to hold on to and protect our inheritance? We must learn to love the truth in order to never part with it. Don't settle for that bargain. Don't settle for selling out and later on realizing how much we miss the truth. We must love the truth in order to never part with it. Please stand with me this morning as I bring it to a close. I know I wasn't very deep this morning, and I hope I've helped someone understand how important it is that we don't sell the truth, how much we must covet the word of God in our relationship with God. Truth is necessary for every believer, but it also takes a daily choice to hold on to it and not sell it or dismiss it. The truth is we don't just wake up one day and sell this thing. We just give a little bit out one day, give a little bit out the next day. When people backslide, they just take one more step further back and further back and further back. Buy the truth and sell it not. The truth is truth is not cheap. Truth costs. Truth is not convenient. Truth isn't comfortable a lot of times. If you hold on to truth, you'll be called upon to make some sacrifices. Truth is not agreeable. It's not palatable. It's not comfortable for us, but it's what we need. And it's what God wants for us. 
But there is one other element of truth that I'd like to touch upon really quick before this is over this morning. How many know there is power in truth? Anybody thankful for the power that is in the word of God? Power to win, power to overcome. Amen. John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32. Then Jesus said to those Jews which believed on him, if ye continue in my word, then ye are my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Other translations say the truth shall set you free. We started this morning by talking about being glad. How many of you are glad that you're free this morning? Amen. Show of hands. Anybody glad that you are free this morning? But I've come to challenge that line of thinking really quick before we end. If you have been set free, why aren't you walking around like you're free? Why aren't you, why isn't your countenance, why aren't you carrying yourself with the same freedom that you declare that you have from this truth? How can you say that you're free if your countenance appears that you're still in bondage? If you walk around with your head down, every time someone says, how are you doing? You're not speaking faith, but you're just speaking error. You're speaking doubt. How can you claim that this truth has set me free if you don't walk around like you're being free? Is your truth, the truth that has the power to make you free, is it genuine? Or maybe you're carrying counterfeit truth and you don't even know it. Very clear, the word of God, this truth has the power to make us free. But it, only way we can have that is if we don't sell it, is if we don't give it away, is when tough times come, we don't compromise. We don't try to blend in, try to fit in. The Bible says, buy the truth and sell it not. Tell your neighbor, buy the truth and sell it not. Would you bow your heads? Sometimes it is easy to start on your destination without knowing the exact path that it takes to get there. To get to our destination, we need to follow the one who knows our predestined path. Be sure to subscribe and watch us every Sunday at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Also, visit us at www.livinghopemd.com. So I'm going to wait on you, Jesus. I'm going to wait.